Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petrucci. And And this this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of the podcast. Boy, oh boy, are you in for a treat on this one. I'm your co-host, Dr. Renee White. My other co-pilot, Dr. Mika Batucci, is off on maternity leave, enjoying some beautiful snuggles with her second born. Oh, man. The guest that we have today is just absolute dynamite. I loved this interview for so many different reasons. First of all, um, Steph Poole, who you will be hearing from very, very soon, is a mental health doula. She's a counsellor, an educator and mental wellness advocate who supports families on the Mornington Peninsula here in Victoria and she's also the founder of a peer support and training program called Mama Bees so M-U-M-M-A Bees which is you're going to hear all about it it's just absolute dynamite it's about holding space for mums who are just in the absolute thick of it this episode is all around mental health and mental awareness so I just want to reiterate that if there is anyone out there who is in need of assistance in Australia there are many organizations including COPE, PANDA, or Lifeline, feel free to reach out to those organizations if you feel that you are depressed or anxious and or feeling just a little bit lost at this point in time. Steph and I, we go there. We talk about mental health, what it was like for Steph to go through a period of trauma post-birth where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression. And even with all of that skill set, all of that insight you'll hear about working in the mental health sector, we're all human. And, you know, she she knew the signs of what to look for and she still kind of fell into that category where she was experiencing some mental health issues. But we dive into what she did to identify those symptoms and what she did to kind of pull herself out of it and and seek help in the end. We finish off with a great rapid fire, (laughs) which was a bit, it was pretty light after we were talking about some pretty heavy stuff during the interview. So you'll hear some great insights from Steph. But if anyone is keen to learn more about Steph, you can find her at her website, which is www.stephaniepool, S-T-E-F-A-N-I-E, P-O-O-L-E dot com. She can also be found on Instagram at the underscore Stephanie underscore pool, same spelling as her website. Or if you are keen to understand and or participate or you need someone from Mama Bees to come and help you with your postpartum period, you can find more information at Instagram at mama, M-U-M-M-A underscore B's, B-E-E-S. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. It is just gold. And as we kind of alluded to within the episode, this is not going to be the last of our discussions. We have got so much to unpack after this. 
I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here is Stephanie Paul. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Renee. Now, for all those playing at home, which is my usual uh, tagline, Steph and I met at another doula's little fundraiser, um, Rachel Flack, who is down on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria, Australia. And as you can already tell from Steph's accent, you are a little bit away from home. <laughs> I am very far away from home. <laughs> Where are you actually from, Steph? I'm from Boston, Massachusetts, in uh, the US of A. Yeah. Good old Boston. I've not made it to Boston yet. It is on the list. You should definitely go. Oh, I mean, the- I say that with a bias, obviously, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been as far as New York, but I haven't got to Boston yet. I did have an opportunity um, during my medical research days, but um, no, I dipped out on that on that conference. But today we are going to be talking all things mother care and mental health, which is your absolute expertise. So can you describe to the listeners before becoming a mother of one now, you Uh worked in the field of mental health, both in the US and Australia. Can you share what type of work that you were doing? So going way back now. Um, yeah, my, my whole career pretty much has been in, in mental health. So I, I'll go even further back, I guess. My passion for this, I, I think, started when um, my dad, my dad struggled with addiction. He, I don't love the word alcoholic, but he was uh, dependent on alcohol. And from a young age, I think I just had this desire to want to help people who are struggling with addiction, mental health issues. And knowing what I know now, he definitely struggled with depression as well. So mm-hmm. so as a kid, it was just something that I had just this empathy towards, I guess. And then when I was in America, you know, it's always like, what are you going to do? What college are you going to? And all these things. And I had to decide, you know, what am I? What am I doing? And so I knew pretty much right away that psychology is what I what I wanted to study. So it's a little bit different in America when it comes to my specific degree. So in America, I would be, I'm what is known as a licensed mental health counselor. Mm -hmm. So for that, it requires a master's degree in psychology and mental health counseling. Unfortunately, when I moved here, that degree does not exist. So it was a bit difficult to kind of get my foot in the door. But when I was in America, I worked in a variety of different settings from adolescent inpatient units to a methadone program with people who are struggling with addiction. I worked in a prison and worked in crisis intervention, so crisis support in a public hospital. So a lot of my work at home in America was more clinical and uh, hospital-based work, so to speak. And then I met my husband while he was traveling after I graduated, and that brought me here. So I've been here 11 years now, and like I said, when I moved here, it was harder to find a job despite you know what I thought would probably my I was a bit naive thinking that you know oh yeah that would be that would be easy to yeah you've done all this education surely um and no it was it was actually really really hard for me because I was you know this is my passion and to think you know maybe I couldn't do some of the jobs that I was doing at home really broke broke me and so I realized that one of the ways that I could utilize my skills was through community mental health services. And I was hired for a lot of roles where it was looking at dual diagnosis, which is basically people who are struggling with both addiction and mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Because traditionally, a lot of times in Australia, at least when I first got here, they were treated, you know, separate, so to speak, more of like looking at the individual issues instead of really looking at them together. So I was hired as a consultant consultant roles to really work with GPs, staff to um, capacity for them to be able to identify these two issues and like, what do you do after that? And what questions do you ask? So that brought me into more of the community health space here in Australia. So I definitely have a broad range of places that I've worked, um, individuals I've worked with. So yeah, it's been really exciting. And I'm so grateful for all those opportunities that I that I had and the mentors I had along the way. So 
That's yeah. amazing. I want to. Yeah. I want to quickly go back. So you worked in a prison. I did. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I'm fascinated. I just don't know what it is. I think probably because one of my best friends growing up, she's worked in the kind of correction system and everything. So I've been fascinated with this. What were you doing in the prison? Were you actually working inside the prison? Like that was actually one of your jobs? Yes. So that was actually, that was in America, it's more of like a, an internship, which here I think it's a, your placement, a placement of practicum. So that was one because I thought I wanted to be a forensic psychologist. So I really wanted to get into the prison system. I loved like anything to do with getting, you know, those who have been incarcerated out into the community, those reentry type programs mm-hmm. and looking at recidivism rates of people going back to prison and, and the mental health. You know, there's so many prisoners who are put kind of in jail that have mental health problems mm-hmm. and that's not treated and just how we how we look at that in in a in jail um in prisons in the prison system and the justice system so yeah my role was doing case management and counseling with the inmates in this it was a it wasn't a maximum security prison it was mainly in saying that there were definitely people in there who've committed um you know more serious crimes but they were in there for maximum uh, like five years. A lot of it was drug related crimes, you know, a multitude of things. But that was my role was the case management and the counseling with the inmates there. So mm-hmm. I got to work closely with, you know, the staff, the correctional staff and really learning the ins and outs of, yeah, what I did and didn't want to do probably moving forward. It, it was a very hard space to work in mentally for myself. You know, you literally went in there and it felt like I was in prison. You had to go through, you know, the metal detectors anytime you went in and out, couldn't use uh, phones and, you know, there was no light. It was, it really was mentally um, draining in so many ways that I think, yeah, it definitely was probably not an area that I still am so passionate about it, but Mm. I definitely was like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be a forensic psychologist (laughs) anymore. Yeah. um, God, that would be for it. Yeah. And were you working with men and women or? I worked with men and women, but I definitely would say that there were more men that I was, that that I had on my caseload at the time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was a male and female uh, prison. So I did do both, but I feel like that along with, the crisis work that I did in the public hospital gave me the most, I don't know, just the the best insight into how unwell people really are can get. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was extreme. That that was the extreme for a lot of people. And, and, and the gaps and the ways that we just were not doing it. I mean, this was in America and I'm, I did, haven't worked in the criminal justice system here, but I know that, you know, it, it would be somewhat similar where there's so many gaps for those people who are incarcerated. So it was definitely an eye opener for me and such a, yes, yeah, one of the best learning experiences probably as a student when I was there. Yeah. Oh gosh. Thanks for sharing that with us. That's, Thanks for asking. I, I, I always kind of I think because I've had so many different career paths along the way, I always like to reflect on, you know, as you say, those kind of pivotal moments and insights throughout like those kind of formative years and how they've shaped you into the person that you are now and and how they've influenced the decisions that you make. I find it absolutely fascinating to kind of reflect on that. And so – you moved to Australia. Yeah. And then you became a mama. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what was <laughs> what was that experience like for you, both the birth and the postpartum? Mm. Yeah, so it was definitely yeah, uh, I mean for anyone it's it's a huge transition and experience, but for me personally I felt like I prepared really well. I, you know, knew I wanted to, you know, do my research. I knew roughly kind of like what I was looking for in terms of birth. I I felt empowered during my pregnancy and I did do hypnobirthing. So I thought, you know, and I had the background in mental health. So, you know, I was like, you know, I'm I'm ready for this. Like I felt like mindset wise during Mm -hmm. the pregnancy, I I had a really great pregnancy. I, I was really fortunate in a sense, um, I enjoyed my pregnancy. When, can, sorry, yeah, can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. For those people who don't know what hypnobirthing is, what is that? Yeah, so hypnobirthing is really using 
Um, I probably won't do it justice the way like someone who actually <laughs> teaches it does. But for me, it was mainly getting in the right mindset where I was able to utilize mindfulness techniques, a bit of hypnosis, like not full hypnosis, but you know, trying to get your mind in line with your body and really using those techniques during labor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of it you can use postpartum, but it also was really helpful for my partner as well, because it gave him something to be doing. I know that, you know, he really is a doer, wanted to know what he could do in there. And I think it really helped him to also stay calm. You know, there were little tasks that they gave him to do. And I found it really, really, really helpful to just yeah, to have that at my fingertips when I needed it. And I, I did utilize it and it, it worked well for me. Again, mm-hmm. maybe not work, you know, it might not be everyone's cup of tea, but I feel like um, it's definitely something that was helpful for me. Awesome. Thanks. And so you say that you felt prepared. So you did the hypnobirthing. What other research mm-hmm. did you do? I mean, I looked into with the hypnobirthing as well. You know, it did go into like what your rights are to and, you know, just what you really want. I did a birth plan. So we went over the birth planning and I felt like I, I birthed in a hospital. Like, so I knew that there were certain things that are, you know, potentially could be a barrier to what it is that I was, what I was wanting, but I was aware, I was aware of those things. I knew how far I could push things. I knew what I wanted to question if it came up. So I felt that that was preparation. Like I felt that that was everything that I kind of needed at the time. Mm-hmm. Going into the birth, I felt, again, I actually had, a, for the most part, a pretty good birth until the end. And I would say, personally, I experienced birth trauma from what I know now, what, what that is. And from that, I think a whole myriad of things presented themselves to me after that. So for me, it was after the birth where I really started to struggle and not really realizing probably the the implications of, of what my birth, what, what happened to me and having the space and the time to debrief that and to mm-hmm. really look at, you know, what that meant for me, you know, it was kind of just like the birth's done, you're home and it's, it's just, this is motherhood, but, you know, I didn't have the space and I physically was not really well after mm-hmm. I had a lot of extra healing to do and I didn't have the, the time or the space to, to do that. I also felt that I was focused so much on the physical side of my body, trying to understand what's happening to my body. My body was not, you know, and I'm not, I'm saying this like in my mind, I I wasn't healing as quickly as perhaps I thought I should, or Mm -hmm. it took me a long time to physically heal. And therefore I feel like I wasn't paying as much attention to my mental health because I was just so focused on like, you know, my, my body and what's happening and I can't, you know, I can't do this or, and, and so I think I just, really glossed over perhaps like no one was really asking perhaps as much you know how my mental and emotional health was throughout Mm -hmm. all of it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so I ended up getting or having post being diagnosed with postnatal depression anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder which we don't always hear about and that was probably eight months into my postpartum and by the time I got help and actually received the help that I needed it was my son was a year old so you know, it was a long journey for me postpartum wise. <laughs> what what did that look like to you though? Was it in, mm-hmm. did you feel like you almost had to do a bit of a self-diagnosis or were there people around you that started to pick up on a few things and they were like, hold on a minute, I think we, this is not, this is not, you know, quote unquote normal. Um, yeah. And, and let's, let's just frame this as well and build some context it is actually, you know, uh, what's the statistics now? One in five women will be diagnosed with postnatal depression and or anxiety in the first first year postpartum. And I think that research paper out of the Murdoch Institute in mm-hmm. um, Melbourne said that you're actually most likely going to be diagnosed with postnatal depression four years, four years postpartum. Um, Mm -hmm. So so what did it look like to you? What happened? Was there a particular event that was the last straw on the camel's back, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, no, I am very open about it because I feel like our stories are what what helps people really look at, you know, try try to help themselves and that you're not alone. And also, sorry, I do share it because mental health 
workers, therapists, counselors, they can also experience these things. We are only human. Yeah, you are not immune. I, I, we're not <laughs> immune. You know, I say if a doctor needs a doctor, they go to a doctor. If a therapist needs a therapist, they may need a therapist. Like, you know, let's just you put that out there because I think that a lot of times as counselors and psychologists, it's like, no, I'm I don't know. It just it feels like there's this disconnect from like we also struggle at times and that's okay to admit. It doesn't mean that you don't have the boundaries. It doesn't mean that you can't help someone else. Mm -hmm. But when you're in the thick of it, you need help. Like mm -hmm. you might need help. You can't just pull yourself right out, you know, with the books that you've read and the things that you did. It can be helpful. But a lot of times you need that support. So what that looked like for me, like I said, this will look different for everyone. But I think for me, I didn't realize like I knew something wasn't right. But I probably just thought some of it was normal in the beginning. I, I, I really thought like this is my first child. Is it really is this how bad it has to feel like I feel horrible mentally, yeah. and emotionally. And I think I just kind of thought, Oh, well, this is this is it, in a sense. And then slowly, um, because I waited a bit longer, I mean, throughout this, I was seeing my maternal health nurse. So this I want to put this in context, because, and I'm not saying this is everybody, but this is important. I mean, I went to multiple appointments with my maternal health center. I sat in mother's group. I went to every single session of my mother's group. You know, I was making appointments for my son. I was attending the appointments for my son. However, it took me everything I had to do these things. And I looked like what I look like now, or maybe not like, you know, but I was <laughs> I put makeup on at times. Sometimes yeah. I didn't, but I want to just paint a picture that what we, what we think sometimes in our head, what depression, anxiety, and mental health issues look like is, is sometimes what we think, you know, uh, like just perhaps not showing up to appointments, laying in bed all day. And that is part of it. But it also is the other side where, you know, maybe you're wanting, I mean, as a mom, you're wanting to do everything you can to make sure that you're taking care of your child. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I was putting myself last in that, you know, and making sure, well, I have to get to these appointments. What will someone think of me? What if someone finds out how bad I am? And they, you know, they're questioning me as a mom, you know, and there's a lot of fear that goes into that as a, as a, as a mother, when you're thinking like, what if my mental health, what are, people are thinking I'm unstable, mm -hmm. what are they going to do? Are they going to take my child away? Like, what, am I going to have to go to a hospital? What happens to mm -hmm. me? You know, so I showed up all the time. And, and I think that throughout that, I did get screened, perhaps, I want to say it was in the really early, like maybe the whatever, the four week, four week mark yeah. with the Edinburgh postnatal depression scale, which yep. is one of the major ones that's used. But after that, the question wasn't really asked very often. And, you know, like I said, everyone's different. And I remember going in numerous times and just saying, I don't feel well, like mentally, I'm not doing well. I was referred back to my GP, you know, and then I was given a book about quitting sugar or something like we, we were talking about, <laughs> diet, which is really important. I'm not downplaying that. But you know, it's really this. And this is something that I talk about a lot, you know, as practitioners, as healthcare workers, you, you get bombarded by everything that you need to know. But it's really important to look at where the client or the consumer or whoever, where they're at. Because, you know, at the time when I was given that, it was just like the, the sugar, like, you know, coffee, sugar, sugar is the, the silver bullet. Me alive. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. So, you know, while that probably could have helped me. Maybe if sugar, you were presenting with, you know, symptoms of diabetes or something. Right. No. And, you know, and these are all things that, you know, and like I said, in the, in the mother's group, you know, I sat there, not much was spoken about, I have to say, around mental health. Like, you know, we were, we were shown or taught, you know, about feeding solids at eight months. I'm like, you know, can we just focus on now? I can literally, I literally can't even survive for the next day, you know, yeah. and how to take books out of the library. And I just yeah. there thinking there's something majorly missing right now from uh -huh. these conversations, you uh -huh. know, and as I started to ask people, in the mothers in the group, it was like they were struggling as well. But we weren't sharing it as a group. It was like little conversations or messages privately. Yeah. And so the stigma of this of mental health issues still exists. And as much as we've done a lot of work, we have awareness. And I'm not saying we haven't made strides, but there's yeah. still a long way to go. There's still a lot of work to be done. <laughs> Why do you think we're so silent about it, Steph? Because I, I can definitely attest to all of this and mm. I had a very, very similar postpartum in the sense that I was like, there is something wrong. Like I remember going, there is something wrong with me and I yeah. don't like the way that I'm feeling and I yeah. don't 
this is not me, you know. And Ooh. and a lot of the time people were just dismissive and they mm. were like, you're sleep deprived, you're hormonal, this is motherhood, welcome to the club, suck yeah. it up, you know. And I think, as you were saying, we – I was exactly the same apart from the makeup. Mm. I never wear makeup. <laughs> You know, I would show up and exact like you hit the nail on the head. It took everything out of uh-huh. you to show up and you are just so depleted at the end of the day uh-huh. and you're just like, I'm so exhausted. And I remember sitting and I've spoken about this one instance in Mother's Group a few times now in the podcast. I remember we were sitting around in a circle and this girl who she was sitting directly opposite me and we were talking uh-huh. about, you know, Exactly. Some BS about, oh, you know, <laughs> solid foods in like, you know, whatever it is, two months time. And you're like, I'm yeah. literally dying here. I'm dying. I'm just struggling to survive the next 24 mm. hours. And the girl opposite me, she put up her hand and said, sorry, can we just talk about something? Is anyone else grieving the life that they used to live? Mm, wow. And like tears swelled in my eyes and I locked wow. eyes with her and I was just like, yes, mm. like, yes, I miss That's the so person powerful. that I am because I don't like the person that I have become, mm-hmm. albeit it is this mother and I'm supposed to look after this, you know, new human being. But why mm. do you have any insight into why we are so silent about this? Mm. Is it because it is a societal pressure that, you know, we feel like we need to be able to do it all, all the mm. time? Mm. That is a great question and a loaded question. Yes, and, it is very you know, I loaded. Can, I can only give my interpretation of some of that, I guess, some of the insight and just, and just yeah, from my personal experience and professional experience working with, with families and, you know, and moms in particular – I think it's multifaceted. I think there's a number of things that, you know, culturally as a culture, I think it is just like, you know, you'll be right, like you said, or, you know, this is part of it. It's that's it. And and so there's there's that dismissive piece, which is, you know, you're looking for maybe that validation to be seen, to feel heard, and then you're just kind of dismissed. So you you be quiet. You, mm-hmm. you don't you don't talk about it anymore, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a silence within that. I think really strongly, like I say this a lot, there is a self-stigma that still exists. A lot of times we can start having the conversations about depression and anxiety and, you know, mental health issues in general or in the past about when we were suffering Mm -hmm. or about a family member or someone that is, it's not us, but we can say perhaps, you know, oh, my brother had depression or, you know, but when it comes to saying, I am struggling now, Mm -hmm. I need help now. Um, We are our own, like we have this internalized stigma, I believe, still within ourselves in general. And then you add motherhood on top of it, which Mm -hmm. comes with a whole other set of expectations and beliefs that we have to be something. But that that self stigma comes from, you know, a societal stigma as well, where it's like, well, we are, well, I'm not depressed, or that wouldn't be me, or I don't have a mental illness. So I'm okay. You know, it's like, I haven't been diagnosed, or I'm not as bad as Johnny over here, you know, Um, and you somehow see yourself as as separate from from mental health or mental illness. When I say all the time, we have, we all have mental health. We Mm. all have mental health, and it's just a spectrum. And there's there's not sometimes for certain people when we look at like mental fitness, and I use this as an example. You know, there's mental illness on one end, and there's you know, flourishing on the other end. And this is Paula Robinson. She's done a lot of research in this area around creating a model of this. And then in the middle, we have, you know, people who are just mental, mentally well, or people who are languishing. And that's the word that she uses. And when you look at this graph, like, obviously, I don't have it in front of me, but a lot of people are in the mental, they're mentally well, or they're, they're languishing a bit. And not as many are kind of in the in the lower not lower. Like when I look at it like that, I'm not saying like a bell curve type thing. A bell curve, yeah. a bell curve yeah, with mental illness and not as many are flourishing. So that leaves a huge proportion in the middle of like, who are these people and yeah. where are they? And to be honest, that's a lot of the people out there, you know, we might not be flourishing. We're not feeling our best. 
but we're not diagnosed perhaps with a mental illness to the point where it's impacting, you know, where we've been hospitalized or we've, we've got that formal diagnosis, Mm -hmm. but we are struggling and we are needing support and help to manage that. Mm. And I think that within that, yeah, there's just so much in there. So, you know, the silence I think is contributed by us maybe not seeing ourselves within like as, as this happening to us, like how could this happen to me or this wouldn't mm. happen to me? Mm. And then health professionals, you know, I think when we go in and we ask a question or we're like, something doesn't feel right, like you said, Renee, you know, when we get the courage to say, I don't feel right, and then someone doesn't receive that in a way that makes us feel validated, that's a big concern. And it's not anyone's fault necessarily, but I think a lot more training and understanding needs to go into how do you have these difficult conversations? And the systems, as we know, need to change perhaps to allow practitioners to have more time, especially if you're working in a public system or GPs, to ask these questions. Because you ask this question, you know, especially if someone's really mentally unwell or perhaps they are suicidal, you need to be able to have the time and the space to sit with that and to to help that person get, get to the next step here, you know, whether yeah. it's a mental health plan or and a lot of times the systems just don't allow the health professionals to to do that. Or someone's afraid if I ask that question, I don't have the skills to or I don't feel like I have the skills to actually handle what that person says, whatever comes next. And, you know, or they think it's not their job to do that. And I've worked with a lot of professionals around this where it's like, well, I'm not a mental health worker, so that's not my job. So I don't really have to ask that question. And so, mm. you know, I think there's, that is a loaded question when you ask that, but there's multiple layers to this, I think, when it comes to the silence that we often hear, because we know, like you said, those stats, you know, are so, the, the, and then it's like one in three for birth trauma. So, yeah. you know, the it's stats crazy. are high. Um, suicide is still one of the leading causes of death for uh, women in the first year of their child's life. So we know that there are people suffering right now. And, and why, you know, what are they doing and feeling alone? And, you know, it's just, that's what, that's what really motivates me. And my passion for this is, is really, you know, knowing that I was one of those people and how easy it is to just fall through, like fall through the the, the gaps. Absolutely. And I want to pause at this very moment because I am, mindful that this is quite a a triggering kind of topic and just to let the listeners know that we are going to talk about support groups that Steph is running um, called Mama Bees and Mm -hmm. also we have had previously on the podcast Dr Nicole Hyatt from the COPE organization and also Panda so if there is anyone out there who is suffering in silence there are organizations out there where people are specifically trained in this topic. And so please feel free to reach out. And I, I know, I know in myself, you know, you just, it's that place of vulnerability. And also yeah. I, in some instances, I didn't want to put a burden on other people. And I was just yeah. like, oh, you know, everyone's busy with their everyday lives and jobs and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. But sometimes all it takes is for you to send a text message. Like I know people don't call people these days, you know, no. <laughs> but sending a message to someone else and checking in on them and going, mm-hmm. how are you going, whether it be – you know, they've just had a baby or they're four months, eight months. I always find that that six, seven, eight months period in a in a baby's life is very difficult for mum because mm. I find that they're juggling the sleep, the feeding, and then also the introduction of solids as well. I just feel like there's yeah. so much going on and there's a huge developmental leap around that time as well. And typically, you know, you kind of get lost. It's, oh, they're not a newborn, so it's kind of like, you know, they're not – they're, they're fine. You know, mum will be fine by now. She's She's got a handle on this. And people don't check in yeah. at, at, at that kind of stage. And I feel like for anyone out there who is at that stage or you know someone, please check in with them. They probably would really love to just have a chat to you and have a cup of coffee or whatever. So please yeah. do that. 
Okay. Where, so during, during that kind of traumatic period where you identified that, you know, you've got postnatal depression, mm-hmm. how did you get through that, that period? Were there particular resources or people in your life that assisted mm-hmm. you with working through that process? And, and during that, did you kind of lean on any of your expertise as a mental health expert? Yeah. Yeah. So I, like I said, I probably around the eight months or maybe nine month mark is when, when you asked that, I think my family was then getting concerned. Like I, I definitely feel like, you know, I mean, growing up, you know, in a family where, like I said, there was addiction, clearly I had, you know, some anxiety. So it was something that was kind of there, but never to the point, like what I experienced after my son was born. And looking back, I had some of the risk factors for, getting potentially perinatal mental health issues. You know, I was away from my family. I was a bit isolated. You know, I had uh, some mild anxiety, some history of mental health issues. I had birth trauma. Like I was higher up on the list and I didn't even look at those things. I didn't, I didn't realize that I'm going into it. So when my family started expressing a bit of concern, I was, I think the turning point for me was I I believed that, you know, with the obsessive compulsive thoughts, I believed almost that like my child was like my son was going to die. And I know this can be triggering for people. Like you said, it's great you gave those numbers because these conversations, you know, can Mm -hmm. be. But we do have to have them believing that like there was like contamination in my house um, to the point where I was like checking my house for like mold and and these are things that can be common with obsessive compulsive disorder we think of it more as like checking locks or it's so much more complex than that and to the point where I like was driving around and not even going home because I felt like my house was gonna somehow hurt us you know we're bordering on delusional like literally delusional thoughts at that point and I think that's when my family was like this is you have we have to do something Mm -hmm. my husband was very supportive but he felt like you know he didn't know what to do Mm -hmm. my mom is in another country and she's just like I need to know like what's going on you know so it was very scary for even my my loved ones to understand and to know you know how can I how can I help Steph like what can I be doing throughout this Mm -hmm. so then you know as we do you know I went to the GP that's the first kind of entry point Using my own knowledge, I mean, I knew that you can get a mental health plan to access that. I knew I could see a psychologist. I knew medication was an option. And I tried, I could try, you know, complementary other therapies as well. And I did all of those things, actually. I pretty much exhausted every option before I took medication. And I say that openly because I do think medications also stigmatize to a certain extent. For me personally, again, I think I had blocks around that as well, thinking medication, like, you know, what is, uh, what are people going to think? You know, uh, how is this going to affect me? I was anxious about taking medication on top of my anxiety that I already had. But I was at a point where, you know, I just feel like if I didn't do that, I don't know what would have happened. I really don't. It was not even so much for me. It was for my son. Like Mm -hmm. if I, and and I think this is a thing I say to people, you know, if, if you can't, search inside yourself to do it for you, you know, maybe it's for your child and that's okay, or your or your partner or whoever it is, because yeah, I think I really was like, you know, I'll be fine. I don't need this. But then it was like, I cannot, how am I going to take care of him? You know, how can I do this if I don't get help? And I don't. So it was really reflecting back on it is very difficult in some ways for me, because this is what I lived and breathed like even before I mean I I believed in self-care I took care of my mental health you know within reason like clearly you know it's it's a struggle it's a a continuous thing that we have to do and then when I found myself in the thick of it I I was like struggling to admit I still was struggling to admit it so when we talk about the stigma when we talk about the silence it is so real and that this is coming from someone who works in the field you know and so yeah yeah, so I ended up, yeah, trying, I did like acupuncture, I took herbal, um, herbal supplements at first, and then that wasn't, it wasn't shifting things fast enough for what I for what I needed at the time. And then I ended up going to the GP and I saw, I saw a psychiatrist, I asked for that. So using my training, I advocated very strongly for myself to see a psychiatrist, I wanted to know exactly what medications I was put on. Not that I didn't trust my GP, but I knew that there's a specialist for you know, a psychiatrist, that's, that's what I wanted. And so I did that. I 
advocated really strongly for follow-ups. Like I booked in appointments. I searched out counseling. I chose who I wanted. I didn't just kind of sit there and say, oh, sure, I'll just go with whoever the GP gives me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I found someone. I said, I want a referral to this person. So I did a lot of research myself and you have all, every right to do that. Like, so I think sometimes we don't know, again, like what we can do, uh, what we, you know, what's available to us. But one of the things I was searching for was another, was, was, a, was like-minded, like moms who'd been through something similar, me- mentally and emotionally, who mm-hmm. had experienced mental health issues, you know, probably a little more extensively. I mean, we all, let's be honest, motherhood, is it's emotional. We all struggle mentally and emotionally, but I really wanted someone to just sit with me and listen, validate, and just not try to fix it. Like, mm-hmm. that's exactly what I wanted. And I don't feel like that was available, at least to me. But when I talk to people, I, I, I don't know if people felt comfortable holding that space that were in my life. Like, I think it was scary for them. I think that something that everybody has the capacity to do but I think we're taught a lot of times or, or it's our instinct to want to fix it mm-hmm. and to just say you know fix it with this or you'll be fine and then and then when you are a bit better like you said not checking back in and realize and thinking like oh they're better now so well that's great it's over you know and yeah I really sought out I was searching for some peer groups in my area some some support groups that I could go to for people and you know birthing people who had gone through something similar and I found it very hard to find that maybe it's just my area but um, I couldn't find what I was looking for and that's that's a beautiful segue to mama bees Mm. do you want to talk to us about that sure so when I you know got myself in a better headspace mentally and emotionally and I um I wouldn't like I know in mental health and you know addiction we use the word recovered but you know this is a con- it's a constant thing like I said I don't mental health it always needs to be maintained and so but I felt definitely you know I was in a better space and I was reflecting on all the things that I wished that I had and like I said I kind of started thinking about a hive and how bees like I've just been fascinated by bees and how they work and you know, it's all the female bees that, that do this, like do the work of the hive and support each other to build the hive together. And I just kept thinking, you know, if I was struggling, like I pictured myself like on, I was on the bathroom floor. I remember one time at like the worst part of my journey and I just was crying and there was no one there. Like it was like my partner was at work. My mom's like sleeping because the time difference. I, I have like, you know, people that kind of knew what was going on, but they didn't know the depths mm. of it and I, that's not their fault that was me just probably not feeling like a burden like you said not wanting to dump it on them and I just sat there and cried and my son was sleeping and I was like I just want someone to, I just want to call someone that I can just chat to that isn't directly involved in my life and they're just like you know I'm, I'm really struggling right now I'm in the depths of the depression or whatever it is or can you come here and just sit with me like yeah. just sit here and just hear me and see me yeah. and that's it like, that's what I wanted and so I had this idea for Mama Bees based off this hive where I could devise a training and train people in basic kind of counseling skills and, you know, storytelling. So it's not like you need a degree. Let's be honest. You don't need a degree to tell your story. You don't need a degree to, to be like a peer support person necessarily. However, I think what I kept hearing, even from the moms that I would do some counseling with is. I want to kind of help other people, other, other moms or other people, but I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Kind of what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, that's, that's something that you can learn. Like, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's not like, you know, not everybody maybe can hold that space, but I do believe people can with the right skills and the right resources. So I developed the Mama Bees training. So it's a, it's a basically a peer training. And when I say peer, it's someone like you and I, someone who's been through something similar that can relate to what you're going through. It's not going to be the same experience, but I train moms in providing that space holding, the active listening, motivational interviewing, you know, validation, how we talk about mental health, what mental wellness planning is, how we can plan ahead for some of these things, the risk factors. So I train them to be able to identify those things, not as a professional, but someone who can then say, listen, 
this could be something that you could benefit from, helping them with appointments, perhaps going to appointments, all the things that, yes, a family member could do, but a lot of times we're not even telling our family members and friends. And so I just thought that there was a gap for that. And I have seen from my clinical experience, there is peer support throughout addiction. There is peer support in mental health. You know, in the mental health sector, they use peer workers a lot. So I was trying to think about how can I take the clinical aspects of this and bring it out into the community so it's available to more people. But within that, it can be really hard because the terminology, the language, what we think about when we think of like peer groups and stuff sometimes can be like, well, you know, what is that? And why do I need that when I have support already, you know, or perhaps you don't have any support and that's a great resource for you. Um, And it doesn't replace uh, professional support at all, but it can actually bridge that gap perhaps, and it can help you in the interim or alongside professional support, you know, as a, yeah, it's just a different perspective really. Because the more people I, I talked to, I just felt like sometimes, like I said, their family and friends didn't even really know what was going on. And I know mine didn't. Mine didn't even know that other side of it. Because like you said, Renee, you sometimes felt like you're perhaps a burden mm. or you don't want to dump it mm. on your friends or family. But these moms are trained to do that. Like they know they're going in for that reason, you know. So it gives it a whole different perspective. If yeah. That makes sense. And I think one of, like a couple of notes on that, you know, the fact that, I think language as well, being trained about, you know, specific use of language and how Mm -hmm. to deal with things, that just takes – you don't need to be taught a lot, I think, but it can have exponential impact on Mm -hmm. that individual around the language and also advocacy because when you're you're in – you know, the trenches of motherhood, particularly in those newborn days, you are sleep deprived. You know, we 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 know from the research that your brain is completely remodeled and continues to remodel. And so it feels very fuzzy and, you know, people like to call it baby brain, which I think is, you know, is, is fine, but you're actually upskilling in that process. You're becoming smarter. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you can't piece together you know, being able to sit in a, a GP's office or even a maternal child health nurse office. I, I remember another, I'm going to share another event kind of with everyone. And it actually was the same, it was the same meeting where we had to do that Edinburgh survey to test maternal, uh, to test mental health. And I remember I had Eva in my arms. She was screaming because she was, of course she needed to feed because we were out and you know babies need to feed and I had to use a nipple shield for feeding because I have defective nipples essentially Um, and so because I wasn't used to packing a baby's bag I completely forgot my nipple shield and she just couldn't latch properly and everything and this woman was like the maternal child health nurse was talking at me and she just continued to talk and talk and talk and talk. And as you were saying, they don't have time. And Mm. she was just trying to get through everything she needed to get through. And my baby's screaming. And I remember Grayson was sitting next to me and he looked at me and he's like, it's okay to stop. Like, can everyone just stop for two seconds? Clearly Mm. Renee's struggling. And, and she was like, Oh, okay. And, And Grayson said to me, Renee, what do you need? Tell us what you need. And I'm like, in that space, I was like, I can't verbalize anything. I'm so stressed out. And sometimes you need someone, that advocate, whether it be, you know, your partner, and if they can't be there, you know, obviously someone from Mama Bees would be amazing because they're trained in this. But someone to advocate for you in those situations and go, hold on a minute, everyone just needs to pause and -hmm. we just need to digest exactly what's going on here. Renee, what do you need? And I, I was like, I'm, I'm just so, I was like, I actually apologize. I was like, I'm so sorry. I've forgotten my nipple shield. You know, there's that big, you know, black mark against mum's name. You know, you can't even feed your baby. And she was like, oh, oh, that's okay. We've got spare ones here. And she had one. And mm. I was just like, oh, for, I'm going to swear for fuck's sake. Why didn't yeah. I say something in the beginning? But I was so like, 
oh, mortified yeah. that I forgot to bring my nipple shield. But you do, you need someone next to you. And for all those people who know me personally, everyone knows, <laughs> you know, I can talk underwater. Um <laughs> I'm very good at advocating for myself, but when I became a mother, it became so difficult. And that is one of the reasons yeah. why going back to going full circle, one of the things where I was like, this feels very strange to me. Why can I no longer advocate for myself? This is a very different person to who I used to be. And I just feel like, you know, as you say, having someone from Mama B's or a partner or support person to be able to sit next to you and, you know, hold that space, pause that moment if you need to pause and just, you know, kind of come up to speed with things would just Mm -hmm. be an amazing, amazing thing to have in your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's so many things of what you just said too and I think in, in my work that I do with families, like, when I talk about mental wellness planning, you know, similar to a birth plan or a postpartum plan, that's exactly what I encourage moms or partners and the families to really look at is when you're in it, it's much harder to do. But when you're before you're in it, perhaps it may never happen, but you know, really thinking about like, what does it look like when you're at your best? Like, you know, you're like, you just said, Renee, you're able to advocate for yourself. You speak up like, you know, Mm -hmm. at at your best, like your mental health looks like what, Mm -hmm. you know, and then, as it starts to perhaps chip away a little bit, like what do you look like then? And what do you need? You know, sometimes we don't know what we need Mm. and that's a perfect opportunity to start thinking about what you might need. A lot of times we do know what we need, but when we're in the moment, we can't verbalize that. So the plans that I help people create, again, we don't hear about mental wellness planning, so to speak. So it's a little bit foreign in the sense of that language. But what I encourage people to do is really think about this beforehand and share it with your birth team, share it with your partner, share it with whoever is in your inner circle so that they have tools to be able to actually help you. And that when you, if you can't verbalize that, you can then, you know, they can say, well, Renee, at this time, you know, you told us that if you become unwell or you become like this, you want us to do this. And then they feel empowered to be like, I'm helping you, you know, Mm -hmm. and when you look back, I mean, you might not like it in the moment what they say or do, but it's like, hold on, we discussed this beforehand, you know, Mm -hmm. it's that preparation and, and having numbers ready, having panda numbers, having lifeline, having, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I thought, oh, I don't need those numbers, you know, it's like, well, great, if you don't, but they're there if you do, and then it can go wherever you want it to go, it can follow you. And it's a process of you then thinking these things through and not just hopping in and hoping that it will just be okay, you know, and our mindset during birth is so important. Like, I really believe that our mindset and the way that we think, and how we what we what we've experienced before mentally and emotionally, that we are pregnant and birth has everything to do with perhaps like how we birth how we come out of it, you know, just working through some of that stuff beforehand. Mm -hmm looking at ourselves, where are we standing before pre, at preconception, you know, with our mental health? Are we in, are we in a good headspace? And what do we need to do to improve that if, if we can, you know, and if we don't know, we need we can find out, you know, yeah. so or ask people go search for people that can help you, you know, so I think, yeah, it just it's I string it through everything I do, you know, in the mama bees, I try I train them with these mental health planning, you know, I I train them with the skills that I have used, you know, the things that I have used that I know have worked and that I've used myself. You know, I've pulled all these things out and used them on myself as well. So it's like these are things that I've done. You know, I'm not just I'm, I'm, I'm practicing what I preach. And I do really believe that this is something you continuously have to work on, you know. So, yeah, I think it just takes a different way of thinking. It's not something that we always think about um, mm-hmm. with our mental and emotional health, but it's really important. Absolutely. I can definitely attest to that. I didn't really do a lot of work when it came to my mindset for birth and Uh I completely spiraled. And I spoke about this in episode three of our podcast. I was at home by myself for the first time in, you know, 30, how old was I? 34 years because I had been School, 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 career, 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 career. My life stopped and mm. my brain spiraled and I ended up, you know, having an elective cesarean because I was like, I do not have the mindset to go through with, you know, a vaginal birth because I my anxiety just went through the roof. 
the mm. concept of like all of these, oh, what if this happens? Oh, what if that happens? Oh, what if that happens? And yeah. yeah, my OB was like, yep, no, we're just not going to put you in that situation because mm-hmm. it's not going to end well. So I definitely, definitely agree with that. For people who are looking for, I guess, do we call them a mama bees practitioner or, you know, is They're- it? Yeah, well, it's Mama Bee's ambassadors because not only are they helping on the ground, but they also are championing the cause as well. You know, this is something new. It's not something that everybody has heard about, um, this whole kind of peer support. I mean, it exists in other areas, but I think it's carving a, a little bit of a new way. So, so yeah, they are available. So on my website, and I'm growing that list, but if there's anyone that's interested or anyone listening who might want a mama bee or need a mama bee or just are curious as to what we're doing we are holding monthly bee connected virtual events so those are there's one coming up this thursday the 15th and that's from 8 to 9 15 mm-hmm. and that's just a way of people really just getting to know us as mama bees what we're doing but we have different themes so this one is ironically about validation and <laughs> feeling seen and heard and just a safe space for you know you to just show up and and feel seen and heard and discuss you know did you feel validated during you know and, and seen and heard during your pregnancy and postpartum but yeah it's really that support virtually perhaps we can do some face-to-face ones I'm really hoping we can get some face-to-face up and running and then on my website there are direct contacts to the mama bees who have been trained who are available if people you know would like to actually talk to someone or you can kind of join the group and then get a sense of what we're doing and then go from there. And if you are listening and would like to become a Mama Bee ambassador, the next training will be in October. So I'm, I'm running the training again. It's a weekend training, a full weekend. So that's available to anyone who's, yeah, wanting to really um, support another birthing person who's gone through the mental and emotional challenges of, of, of motherhood. And yeah, I think just really spreading the word and getting ourselves out there to really just express what it is that we do for people. So, and yeah, and my other services I do, you know, I am a doula, a counselor, and I think a lot of my services are really, again, I offer, I'm going to be doing a workshop on mental wellness planning coming up because I found, I think people just wanted to know how do you, how do you create a mental wellness plan? So we can do that. And then I put together birth education for a healthy heart and mind, which is more about the mental and emotional challenges that you might face, but how you prepare mentally and emotionally mm-hmm. for birth. Because we hear a lot about the physiological side and, you know, the labor and all of this. But this is specifically for those who really want to take that proactive approach um, for their mental health. And, yeah, I offer some other services which you can download from my website if anyone's interested in any of those. That's awesome stuff. Thanks. We'll have all of that in the show notes on our website as well. I'm mindful of time, so I'm going to finish up with a rapid fire, which I love doing now. (laughs) (laughs) So brace yourselves. Okay, here we go. If you could go back and tell yourself as a new mum something, what would you say? Wow. Um, let's say the first, the first two weeks, what would you say oh, to yourself? The first two weeks. Um, I would say, yeah, I'm not really good with the rapid fire. I'm not rapid. Am I? Um, <laughs> I, I would say you are learning. It will take time to learn more about this relationship, to build this relationship with your baby. Yeah, it's not necessarily going to happen right away, but it's going to take time to build that. Do you have a go-to reference or book for your mamas that you look after in your doula work, whether that be birth or pregnancy or postpartum or mental health? Do you have a go-to? So one of the ones that I found so helpful and I wish I had was Dr. Oscar Sarilak's book, The Postnatal Depletion Cure. Like, where, where was that when I needed the most? I know. Um, that is, I give that to everyone. I, I just, I, that book is so, was so good. I read it after the fact and it was still helpful. Yes. Um, but also, one of Taryn Godden, who is amazing. If you don't follow her, you need to. But she just wrote a book called Body Conscience. Mm-hmm. Conscience. Body Conscience. And it's amazing because it's all about a holistic approach to pelvic pelvic health and women's health, women's mm. health. And just, she's an amazing, yeah, amazing practitioner. 
and does a lot of womb work and really incorporates a lot of that holistic side of pelvic pelvic health. Okay. So Tara, was it so Tara again, Godden? Taryn, Taryn. Oh, Taryn Godden. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll put that on the show notes. That'll be good. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's really great. Um, what's your favorite mum hack? Do you have one? Some people don't have one, which is okay to say. I don't have one that comes to mind right away. Not fast enough, probably. No, I'm prob- probably maybe I'm not as that creative. Like That's okay. I, I don't have. I don't think I have a hack. <laughs> That's all right. Number one thing you would say to a first-time mama before she's had the baby, let's say. Okay, I'm gonna say what my passion is like please think about your mental and emotional and spiritual health. Don't neglect that. And in like invest in it. I'm not even talking about money wise, like, but invest in it. We get bombarded by, you know, the prams and the, this and the, that, mm-hmm. and that's great, but please just think about it. Mm-hmm. Perfect. What was your favorite postpartum meal? Did you have like something where you're like, God, I'm having a really rough day and I'm going to, Either I'm either going to buy this or I'm going to make this or get someone to make it. Did you have one? I, well, this was probably going further on because it was kind of summer. So I felt like I was having summer food. But I remember like my mother-in-law is an amazing, amazing cook, like, uh, yeah, and baker and everything. And, but she made like really great like soup. So this was further down the line, but I just, I remember those and they were like hearty, like warm. And I just loved anything that was like, just yeah really nurturing and nourishing and like but but like heavy and easy like easy Mm -hmm. to easy to do so soup soups were definitely my thing love it what do you do to find zen Mm, that's a really good one I make it I mean in terms of like things that I go to do I do do yoga yin yoga I did throughout my whole entire journey throughout all of this and it pretty much saved my life like save my life in so many ways so I practice that and I do that on my own as well and I feel like I always make it a point to have time for myself like I have to carve that in like it is it's just not even negotiable whether it's 10 minutes I try to make it longer than that but Mm -hmm. and expressing that I have to have that to Mm -hmm. be the best mom that I can possibly be however I need to get that um, I, I try to find it even if my son is here I will, if I don't feel bad about it, like I will make sure that he's doing something. If he's watching TV, if he's yep. doing it, I, I will find a way. And that's always like, yeah, just, just what I do. And, and walking, I think walking for me is a really big one. I used to run, not so much anymore, but I feel like just getting outside, outdoors, grounding my feet in the ground. Those are my go-to like everyday things that I think are easy to implement for me. So that would be, yeah. Awesome. And our last question, which we ask all of our guests, what is on your bedside table? Oh, oh wow. That is the best one ever. Oh, we I'm we so poached excited. it. We poached it. We can't take all credit. We poached oh. it from, from none other than Brene Brown. But we find That's that it's, it's a good thought-provoking one, and I find it, like, provides a bit of an insight into people. It would, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, my bedside table is very, very lots of stuff on it so I have a photo of my son and I I have a lamp a little lamp on the side I have probably five crystals um different types of crystals I have jewelry that I take off like if I take my earrings off I tend to leave the ones I wear the most on the bedside table Mm -hmm. I have a coaster to put a drink on Mm -hmm. this is not the biggest bedside table but it fits a lot on it and I have two little legos um that my son gave me one is like an Elvira type Elvira like uh, is uh, yeah I don't even know what characters they are um no and the other one I do it's um it's a bee she's a bee um he gave me these and he's so cute with the mama bees like he knows he he gets me like bee things um so those two little Legos are there um and I have a little rock that I made with a smiley face on it so there's a lot of my bedside table that's beautiful I love it (laughs) But I love having, like, for me, it's like, it's it's almost like, I guess that would be like my little altar. Yeah. In the sense where I don't have it separate from somewhere else in the house at the moment. That would be great eventually if I could. But I feel like I like waking up and like having it there. But I probably need to clear some of the jewelry, some of the other stuff off of it so I can actually 
Yeah. It sounds like a classic mum's bedside table. Yeah, so. it's a big mixed <laughs> match of all different things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Legos, crystals, I love it. Yeah. Look, Steph, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for being so authentic and raw and genuine and sharing with us all those very personal things about you i know as we say this topic can be quite triggering and it is a very difficult topic to talk about whether it be face to face with just one person but you know a podcast that's going to be aired out into the ether for everyone to listen to i really really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today i don't think this is going to be the last time that we're going to have you on the podcast because no, i feel like I, oh i'm just speaking together I there's like, yeah, lots to talk about and unpack from this again. episode so yeah, let's well. take this as part one but thank you so much for sharing your time with us today thank you so much for having me and same to you being vulnerable as well and yeah just it's been so great to have this opportunity i really appreciate it my pleasure. Now, we will have everything on the show notes for everyone, including Steph's um, websites, Instagram handles, all that fun and exciting stuff. Please get connected with Mama Bees. It is a really, really beautiful group to be part of. And we will see you all later. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.